great things I read. Women struggle with this sometimes in the very same ways as men. Uh, but oftentimes women struggle with sexual morality, sexual uh, purity, just in different forms. Uh, while the, the guy may, may desire uh, sexuality for his eyes, uh, the, the woman might want it just for her, her heart or her ego or uh, whatever. And you can think about all the different uh, differences there. You can think about uh, the way um, I don't wear low-cut shirts to show off my figure, uh, you know, uh, but, but women can do that. And I would call that uh, in the, the, the area of, of sexual immorality. It is uh, attempting to tempt someone, uh, but it makes you feel good about yourself. Um, again, and so that, that would be actually a, a more on the, the women's side in general. Um, so, so this sexual purity, this sexual uh, morality really covers all of us. And um, again, and I don't want to uh, demonize uh, sexuality or, or sex or the pleasure of sex. It is a good gift from God. It is a good gift from God that, that uh, can be enjoyed in the proper context. According to God's plan, anything else is sexual immorality, is impurity. God, uh, all through his word, one man, one woman, in the context of marriage, that's it. That's, that's where sexual expression, sexual pleasure can take place. And so I just want to set those uh, down as, as ground level uh, things. And so, I mean, you can just, there are so many different variations of sexual uh, perversion and, and impurity. And you, you could just think before marriage, outside of marriage, uh, uh, not one man to one woman. You know, there, there's just so many different ways uh, that, that we can do this, um, this sexual immorality. And um, I, I really think as I, as I look around, as I, uh, you know, uh, am on the internet do, uh, doing whatever things, as I, you know, uh, watch TV, even as I go, you know, to the store, what I see is a, is a culture that is trying to normalize impurity, okay? It, it is a culture that's saying, hey, 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 if it feels good, then do it. If this will, will make you uh, happy, then this is the way that you should go. You shouldn't feel ashamed at showing your body. You shouldn't feel ashamed at looking at that person's body. You shouldn't be ashamed at coming together as long as you're two consenting adults. And even that one is being challenged uh, right now in our society, if it has to be consenting and if it has to be adults and just, uh, all these things. But it's trying to normalize all of this. And I could give you many examples of this uh, normalization of uh, sexual promiscuity uh, that is just now so commonplace. I mean, you name for me a TV show that does not have sexual promiscuity, um, and, and it'll probably be a cartoon made for three-year-olds. Um, and I like praise God that that exists if it does. Uh, but it's just so rampant and it's so normalized. And I also want to say this, and again, this is not going to be a sermon of, of condemnation or, or guilting you, uh, but it's not going to be a sermon of, oh, it's okay to do whatever you want. Because even within the church, there is a loosening of the reins. There is a loosening of the standards saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal anymore. You know, maybe this is something they cared about back, you know, uh, with the Levitical laws, you know. And then I see that stuff on the internet. People will say, uh, well, yeah, here it says to stone someone if they're caught in sexual immorality. Like, but it also says that we can't eat, you know, uh, uh, you know, shellfish. It's just like, okay, so you read the first few chapters of the Bible. You probably didn't read it. You probably found it online. Uh, but you can go all through the Bible. I'm seriously, in a moment, I'm going to list for you, and I'm going to end in Revelation at the very end of time where it tells us sexual immorality will not be okay. Uh, I need us to have a sobriety about sexual immorality that the world and even many churches are not going to give you. So just, just listen to these real quick and then tell me if it's okay for you to, uh, uh, you know, uh, use your eyes and your hands and your body the way you want to. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The flesh is talking about these base desires, these, these evil desires within us. If you do those, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put them to death, you will live. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, it just started with sexual immorality. It, it didn't say uh, that the person who, anyway, sexual immorality, whatever that covers is in that will not inherit the kingdom of God. I, I, I want to clarify that because some of us might say, well, my sexual immorality isn't that bad. I just want to tell you there is no category for not that bad sexual immorality um, in God's book because that's all it gives us. It's just a sexual immorality. You have, even have adulterers later. Adultery is, is, is a, a separate uh, one in that category. Ephesians 5.5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Hebrews 13.4, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then here we go, Revelation. So this is not Deuteronomy, okay? This is not a Levitical Israelite law. Revelation 21, 8. This is the end of time. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's hell. This is not an Old Testament outdated thing that was culturally defined. Well, they were just very prudish back then. And then later they were very puritanical. And then later they were very Victorian. Like, no, you can't always say these things were just bad in the past. Because we see at the end of time that those who are given to sexual immorality, to just practicing it, walking in it, and not repenting of it, their place their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so we just all need, need a healthy sobriety. Again, that the world, that TV, that magazines are not going to give you, and even, uh, God forbid, many churches may not give us. Sexual immorality, if not dealt with by, by the power of God, by, by faith in Christ, will kill you. It will damn you to hell. Once saved, always saved. Listen, it will kill you. Paul does not mince words. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. It will kill you. And I might also add, this could be any type of sin that you entertain in your life. Lying, uh, uh, swindlers, it's, uh, you know, all these things that we've just seen. The greedy... So many, so many different options of, of the sins we might deal with. And again, these things will drag you to hell if they are not dealt with in your life. That, by the way, isn't even to mention the fact that it can destroy your life right here, right now. You can go ahead and start hell early by walking in sexual immorality. Sexual immorality ruins families, it ruins friendships, it ruins uh, marriages, it ruins... Uh, just so many dynamics in a home to a father to a son or a daughter you name it sexual immorality can mess it up that's right here right now as well as eternity so with that understanding we need to see that this example uh, and what's going on here what makes the difference between someone who walks in impurity and someone who uh, walks in in morality someone who, who gives themselves who even seeks uh, sexual immorality, and one who resists to the highest degree. So let's read together. Genesis 38, we're going to start at verse 6, and we'll go through verse 19. Now it kind of starts with uh, some backstory, so we know who this uh, woman Tamar is, so you just got to kind of hang on with me. Uh, verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, Remember, he had three sons uh, with a Canaanite woman. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So we're introduced to Tamar here. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Very interesting, by the way. It's the first time an individual is just put to death for their wickedness. 
uh, with no explanation or anything there. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the, bru- the, the, the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So uh, just pausing there. there. Culturally, it was if a, uh, a, the man's, uh, sorry, if a man dies and he has a wife and they hadn't had any children yet, one of the brothers uh, would, would, would take her, uh, um, have, have relations with her, and hopefully conceive a child and that child would be considered the, the brother's, the, the deceased brother's child. And that would carry on the brother's name. That child would receive the inheritance of that, uh, the brother, the, the, the deceased brother. And so, anyway, that's, that's what Judah tells Onan to do. It, by the way, later becomes uh, an Israelite law that they must do this. Um, and we, we see it later with people like Boaz and stuff. Anyways, we, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going here. Where am I? Verse 10, I think. Nope. Verse 9. But Onan knew, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went, went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So he thought it was uh, Tamar's fault, even though his sons were wicked. Anyway, um, and I lost my place again. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. I'll pause there again. You remember Judah really had no intentions. He was afraid of Tamar because his sons were dying. Even though it was their own wickedness, he's afraid. And here we see that um, Sheila, his son, has gotten old enough, yet he still has not given her in marriage. So here's her revenge. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. I want to make sure you get what just happened here. This is his daughter-in-law who dressed as a prostitute. He has now turned to, aside to her. He's, you know, said, what can I give you uh, uh, to, to do this sexual act with you? They, they make their deal, and, he, and they, they do this sexual act, and, sh- act, and she has now conceived. Uh, we'll find out later that these are actually twins that she's conceived. So congrats, Judah. And this is, this, is, this is hard stuff. It just shows you the depth. I told you you can start hell now. If you want to start hell now, go ahead and give yourself to sexual immorality. Genesis 29, the next chapter, and we're going to start in the second half of verse 6. You'll see how it uh, kind of has a, a paragraph break there. Second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. I'll pause right there. Remember, he's been sold into slavery. He's in Potiphar's house. He's become the highest in command in Potiphar's house. The wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as, he, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in, in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as he saw that he had left his garment in her hand, sorry, uh, and, as, and as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to him, said to them, See, he has brought, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Remember, she's telling a fake story, so don't hear this as the truth. You know he fled when she was trying to, to get him. Then she laid up his garment by her, by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me... To, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph, Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in, per, in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. That is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we have just now read two stories. Brothers born in the same household. One has brought an incredible tragedy into his life by, because of his, his sexual immorality. The other has displayed incredible resilience against sin. God, would you make us more like a Joseph? I know that ultimately we want to be like your son and he would have treated this the same way, but from this that we're, we're studying right now, Lord, would you make us more like Joseph and less like Judah? God, I pray that you would reveal to us any ways that we have tendencies that are similar to Judah's. The one that we look at and we're revolted by his story, God, reveal to us how we do the same things, maybe not to the same degree of, of, of blatant sin, but we, we still are committing sin against you. And Lord, help us to see what it will take to have lives that are like Joseph's, that are protected from impurity, Lord, that glorify you. God, do this, I pray, in your son's name. Amen. So there is a stark difference uh, between these two men. I mean, I, I have uh, two separate word files on my computer, of just side by side. Here's what they did. And you can see just differences uh, in, in the way that they handle this situation. I plan on... Unless I just really uh, find some creative energy here, I plan on next week getting to the practical sides of here is how Joseph uh, responded to temptation, okay? And it, that should be a, a lesson for us, how we should respond to temptation. And we'll dig into that more next week. But the question is, what made the difference between these two brothers? Why, why, why did one fail so tremendously and the other one resists so victoriously. Because, I mean, they both knew the rules. Well, if they both knew the rules, then why didn't they both just do the same thing? Well, there was something behind those rules. Okay? There was something other than the letter of the law that was making them act differently. 
Now, last week, uh, or sorry, not last week, uh, two weeks ago, last time I preached, we had Eric last week, but last time I preached on this, um, I gave you some introspective questions. Who are you serving? I remember is one. I don't remember what the other one was. But um, you know, these introspective questions, and then we're going to you know, take the rest of the time to reflect and, and truly answer those questions in our hearts so that we can present those answers, our, our findings, to God and say, either thank you for your work so far, uh, but I need more, or God, I'm in a bad place, and I, and I need you to change me. So... That's what we're going to do today, once again, is, is do just a couple of introspective questions uh, to, to get us on our way, to guide us through here. Not there yet. Still not doing it. Oh, don't look ahead. All right, here we go. First question, does your faith make you pure? Does your faith make you pure? or at least fighting tooth and nail for purity. I, I don't want to be an idealist, uh, one who, who is outside of reality, you know, who says, does your faith make you 100% holy? Because uh, it turns out there's no one like that in existence other than Christ that's ever worn flesh. But my question is, does your faith make you pure, or at least fighting tooth and nail for your purity? I think it's, important that, that we understand some things about faith. I mean, many people like to believe that they are saved, you know, they, they believe I'm saved, you know, I've trusted in Jesus, I walked the aisle, I signed the card, I threw my stick in the fire, I prayed the prayer. But that same person believes they can still do whatever they want. I mean, you might not want people to know about it, but they believe they can still do whatever they want. And they might say something like this, well, if salvation is by grace through faith, not by works, then what's it matter what I do? It's not like I'm trying to earn my salvation anyways. I'm already in, so I can do whatever I want. They see no reason to be bothered by the fact that they are continuing to walk in patterns of sin whether that be sexual immorality or otherwise. But we need to understand that a faith that does not produce outward fruit, such as purity, does not produce outward fruit, is no true faith at all. We, we, we see these two brothers, right? We see these two brothers that, once again, they grew up in the same household, there, there was some age difference there, probably. I know uh, uh, Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery, and uh, Judah appears to be quite a bit older. But they grew up in the same household. They both knew the covenant promises that they were under, right? God had given covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their father. They both knew what it was to trust God, the way Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And they both even knew uh, about Joseph's dreams, oddly enough, um, that, that he had, remember that his, he had the dreams about sheaves and about the stars uh, bowing down to him. So he would have some sort of God-given royal uh, position they both knew these things, and they knew the moral rules that they should be following, yet we see them take such different paths. We see one with, I mean, rotten fruit after rotten fruit being produced, right? We saw last week that, that uh, Judah was only serving himself at his father's biggest crisis, his father, uh, you know, had lost his son, he thought, Joseph. In his biggest crisis, Judah just up and goes away. Mm, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave the, the house. Uh, uh, you know, so he loses another son. He's not there to comfort his father. He's just serving himself. He's going to see what the world feels like rather than living in this uh, stiff home. And we, we see uh, even this week that he's uh, dishonest with Tamar. Oh, just stay at your father's house, which that was a jerk move, by the way, too, to say stay at your father's house instead of him taking care of her. But stay at your father's house until my youngest son is, you know, old enough 
for you. But he had no real intentions of giving her to him. So he's dishonest. And then now we see this prostitute, or so he thinks, he immediately turns aside and <laughs> makes a deal to commit this, this sin. This is a man who lacks faith. It doesn't matter what, what family he was born into. It didn't matter, to use today's terms, what church he went to, what music he listened to, what study group he was in. Didn't matter how well you could do on the test, right? The Bible test, the trivia. It didn't matter because he very clearly had not, did not have true faith in God because true faith in God changes you. True faith in God makes you pure. I think about what James said. We'll look at James and Jesus, how they talk about this. James says this, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says uh, in the preceding chapter before that, that if anyone uh, believes themselves to be righteous but continues walking in sin, this is what he says, they deceive, de that person deceives his heart and this person's religion is worthless. Hear me, hear Jesus, hear James, and I'll tell you what Jesus said in a moment because it's more helpful for us. If you are continually walking in sin, if there is not fruit of faith, and I'm not talking about taping on fruit. You know what I'm talking about, faking fruit. If it's not driven by faith in God, I want to please him, I want to obey him, then you're deceiving your heart. Your religion is worthless. You might as well give up the sham, by the way. I can think of a lot more uh, exciting things to do than come to church on a Sunday. So if, if your religion is worthless, don't bother. You know, I, I don't really say that because I believe God could speak to you through this and you're always welcome here. But it's not a good place to be when you're self-deceived. Say, well... I claim to be a believer. I claim to have faith. I know the answers. I know about the covenants. I know about the promises. And then walking in unrepentance. You deceive your heart. Your religion is worthless. If faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And Jesus says this, uh, Matthew 23, uh, verse 26. He says this to the Pharisees. He says, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. That's what you need. Again, do not try to, to hear this sermon uh, or, you know, and hear this story and, and tape on good works. Don't try to just clean the outside of your cup. That's not the point. What Jesus says here is we need to clean the inside of the plate. What's he talking about? He's talking about our heart. Our, our heart needs to be cleansed. How do, we, how do we do that? By repentance and faith. We trust in Jesus and we turn from our old life and say, I want him instead. That, that's kind of, repentance and faith, by the way, are really one motion. They're two sides of the same coin. I, I'm living, serving myself. I'm under the dominion of Satan. I'm serving my flesh. But I see Jesus. I trust him. And so to turn to him, you're turning away from your sin. That, that's in the heart. You can't tape that on. You can fake it. You can say, I've turned in my heart. But this is what Jesus says, if you want the outside to be clean, if you want purity, if you want honesty, if you want uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to be a, a generous person, to be a kind person, clean the inside of the cup and the outside will be clean also. And so again, we reflect here and I, I'm saying, does your faith make you pure? Is this happening in your life? Are you, are you seeing that you're more and more becoming clean on the outside? Are you seeing that more and more you're becoming like a tree planted by streams of waters that bears fruit in its season? Is fruit in your life? We're talking about a lack of, of, of uh, uh, rotten fruit and good fruit, delicious fruit, uh, the, these appealing things that are from God. Is that going on in your life? Does your faith make you pure? I mean, I've been studying this all week. In fact, I, you know, had sort of started uh, last week because I knew I didn't have to preach. So I'd sort of started studying for this. 
And I've just been, been begging God, God, let my faith make me pure. God, let my faith make me pure. I don't want to tape it on. I don't want to act like I'm pure. I don't want to, to, to force purity. Yes, I'm going to have to work for it. I'm going to have to put forth effort, but, but let it be real. Let it be my faith in you that makes me pure. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, you might have to help me because I don't have it written. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives within me. In the life that I now live, I live by in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith. God, let my faith make me pure. Let my faith make it obvious that my old self has been crucified. Let my faith be what, what, what drives me to turn away from sin. Let my faith be what drives me to turn in purity, to turn in righteousness. And by the way, we're not just talking about sexual immorality. That's what this text is about. But let, let, let my faith be what turns me to kindness and, and, and to forgiveness and to, to honesty and to what, whatever. God, may my faith make me patient with my kids. <laughs> Speaking from the heart here. God, let my faith Make me quit loving possessions. Let my faith make me want to give what I have to, 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 to serve other people. Let my faith make me want to spend my time and my energy making disciples and sharing with people the greatest news on the planet, God. Let my faith do that. But here's the question. You say, this is, you're still talking up in the clouds, Right? Let my faith make me pure. What does that even mean? What does that even do? do how do I, do I, where's the button for faith and turn it up and just, I, what are we talking about? What are we talking about here? So here, here's my, my next point. And again, you can see this just kind of behind the scenes. You can see this just kind of behind the scenes and what's going on in, in uh, uh, Joseph's and Judah's life. So my question is, what are you longing for? What are you longing for? What, what deep down in your heart do you desire? What do you desire most? See, faith changes our longings. It doesn't mean that our longings for bad things necessarily go away. But he changes our longings. He increases the good ones, decreases the bad ones when we truly have faith. It changes our longings. And listen to this. Our lives are made up of our longings. What you prefer is what you will pursue. You will seek the things that you believe will satisfy you. And so whatever you are doing, that is the thing you are longing for. So think about this with me. Sexual immorality. Sexual desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. Judah cannot be condemned for having sexual desire. Neither do I think that Joseph lacked sexual desire. The question was, what did they desire most? Did they desire to, to enjoy God, to obey God, to cling to God? Or they desire something else? So you think about this pleasure. We could just put this under pleasure. They wanted the pleasure of, of uh, sexual relations. Judah, I mean, there's not even a mention of God in his whole section there in 38. He's just absent, wholly absent from Judah's entire life. He's not looking to God. He's not thinking about God. It doesn't mean he doesn't know about God. It means he's forgotten God. He doesn't have true faith in God. By the way, that, you could just put that uh, on your, your, your door frame, you know, as you go out the door. Forgetting God <laughs> leads to sin. It does. When we forget about God, that he exists, that he is glorious, all the good he has done for us, all the good he is going to do to us, we forget about that. We start living our lives however we please. And that's what we see Judah do. I mean, it is like startling to us, isn't it? Hey, there's a prostitute. What may I give you to come into you? Woo, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You know, like, he's forgotten all about God. We see the same thing with Tamar, don't we? Tamar is an Egyptian woman 
No love for God. Pagan woman, or sorry, not Tamar, forgive me, Potiphar's wife, not Tamar. Potiphar's wife is an Egyptian woman, no love for God. Hey, come lie with me. Not talking about uh, uh, you know, camping or just sitting there and talking, right? She is just straightforward. You, the, the two people that, that sound the most similar are Judah and Potiphar's wicked wife. They both longed for pleasure more than they longed to please God, to enjoy God. Joseph, on the other hand, I don't know if, I mean, it's hard to know exactly because we, we, we haven't seen Potiphar's wife. We don't know uh, Joseph's personality. We know that he was good looking. Uh, it doesn't say whether or not she was. I, the text gives us no reason to think that she wasn't good looking. He was 17 years old when he sold into slavery, taken straight down. It doesn't tell us how long has elapsed, but we're not meant to think a whole lot of time has elapsed here. You think a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 19-year-old has sexual desires? You think that their hormones are just completely under control? No. I mean, you need to understand how difficult this would have been, uh, for, for how, how much he would have longed for sexual fulfillment. And there, he doesn't even have prospects of it for, you know, like, I'm a slave, you know. I might as well take, take this opportunity when it comes. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. He didn't have to try to woo her. She, she, she t- says to him, lie with me. And then it says day after day. I think it's uh, verse 10. If I remember verse, uh, yeah. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Day after day. Then one day, she says, I'm not going to just use my words anymore. I'm going to get all the other servants out of the house hey, uh, can you run to the store real quick? Hey, can you run to the blow? All the servants out of the house. This is unusual. And then she grabs him and says, lie with me. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. I mean, at some point you say, okay, this is where he's going to break. Okay, no one's here. She just won't leave me alone. I mean, it'd probably be pretty fun anyways. And yet he resists his temptation. Why? Because his longing for God was greater than his longing for sin. His longing for God, for knowing God, for experiencing God, for treasuring God, for having his hope, his joy, his peace in God was greater than his desire for pleasure or for the ego boost. I don't know about you, but I don't have anyone day after day soliciting me. I don't have anyone making preparations, pushing people out, and then grabbing me and saying, all right, we're going to do this. But how do we fare? How do we fare under our own rather light and puny temptations in comparison to this? Again, Some of you might say, well, I don't struggle that much with sexual immorality. Cool, you probably still struggle with it a little and probably more than you realize because you're desensitized to how much your eyes are drawn to things and your your heart is drawn to things. But other sins as well. How much are we like Judah that all we see is, oh, there's a prostitute. Oh, there's an opportunity for it to do something that I want to do. Oh, all we need is like this little teeny temptation, you know. What does that say about us? Any time we choose to sin, it shows that our longings are out of order because your life is made up of your longings. You will seek what you believe will satisfy you. You will pursue where you think you will find the greatest pleasure, the thing you prefer. So as we look at this, I mean, we can, we can see again... Um, the way he spoke to her, uh, verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, this is Joseph, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. 
He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this wickedness and sin against God? Joseph's longings were for God. What are you longing for? Is your faith making you pure? Because ultimately that's what it is, right? I believe one of two things. Every time you sin or, or don't sin, <laughs> you believe one of two things. I believe that this will be better than God or God will be better than this thing. Every single time. That's faith, right? What was, what was our salvation made up of? Our salvation was made up of I don't want that old life anymore because Jesus is better. His salvation is better. Eternity with him is better. So we turn from that, but then we go through our normal lives and say, hmm, sin kind of seems better than Jesus right now. Hmm, sin seems kind of actually, you know, doing this, telling this little lie, this little sexual pleasure, this little second look, this little flirting with the guy, this little, hmm, that seems better right now. It will bring me more pleasure. It will bring me more satisfaction that is ultimately what the fight for faith is, is a fight for satisfaction, a fight for longing for God. And Jesus says that it can be so. He said to the woman uh, at the well, by the way, sexual immorality was her problem. She had uh, five ex-husbands and was now sleeping with a man she wasn't married to. And Jesus says this to her, John uh, 4, verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, you want to draw the water of this world? You want to draw the, the, the water of, of sexual immorality? Of that, that second look, that, that little pleasure? You'll be thirsty again in no time. You might as well drink salt water, right? Salt water makes you more thirsty after you drink it. But Jesus says, you'll never be thirsty again when you drink of me. It will well up in you like a spring welling up to eternal life. This is, this is the idea of, of Jesus is the soul-satisfying water. And, and the, the beaut beautiful thing about Jesus is when we drink of him, he becomes inside of us. And, and he becomes a spring that we can tap into, that we can drink from, that we can continually draw from, an endless spring, right? The Spirit has been put inside us. He's poured this, this hope and this love into our hearts. And we so often, even though we could take part in this beautiful, clear refreshing cool water we lay down on the ground put our face in a mud puddle and we slurp it up that is how foolish we are taste and see that the lord is good that that that, that was thrown out there not as like a we'll see which one you have better taste buds for the point of taste and see that the lord is good is that he is so much better than everything else so when you take of him when you're drinking of him those other things will not be desirable now i've drank some pretty gross water i've done a lot of backpacking a lot of running a lot of uh, mountain and there have been times i've had to drink bad water i don't when i'm at home we've got purified water i don't go out in the yard and try to find a puddle because I've got this satisfying water that comes right out of the fridge. Cool, it's refreshing. I don't need to go out there. That's what Christ must become for you. You must be, be so accustomed to, to, to going to that water rather than the puddles of this world. Strangely enough, I mean, this is part of our perversion, again, not even talking sexually, this is part of our twistedness, is that we still have a taste for the muddy water. But I promise you, the more you drink of the pure, the refreshing, the satisfying water, you'll say, why did I ever do that again? Why did I, why did I put my face in that puddle? I come up muddy, I come up, I get sick from it, there are little amoebas in there. That's what sin is. Piper, uh, in a book I, I read this week, 
called uh, Battling Unbelief with the Superior Pleasure in Christ or something to that effect, but Battling Unbelief, if you want to read it, it's a section out of Future Grace. But he says, over time, this is like the very last closing section, he says, over time, God peels away the sugar coating from the poison that we're taking. God, God peels away the sugar coating of sin because the more we find our satisfaction in God, we say, why would I even want that thing? Listen again to Joseph. <clears throat> uh, the middle of verse 9. How then? God has been so good to me. God has done all these things for me. He's raised me up in here. He's made me treated so well in your house. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you hear that? Why would I go drink from the puddle? Why am I going to dig through the trash when there's a table full of delicious foods? And that's what God is. Here's my problem, though. I'm telling you all this. I'm trying to bring it down to ground level. But some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Not because you don't understand, but because you've never tasted. Or maybe you've forgotten the taste. I don't know if you've ever done that uh, with like a restaurant or maybe a, a recipe or something. You, you, you say, you know, where do we want to go tonight? We can't hardly do that now, right? COVID. But anyways, uh, where do we want to go tonight? And you say, oh, hey, you want to go to this place? And you go there and you're like, man, I forgot how good this place is. They, they, they make their pizza perfect. The cheese is melting. It's just, why do we never go here? Friends, if you've forgotten what God tastes like, go back, run back, and you will see that he is good. You will see that it is to be desired over your sin, over sitting in front of the TV. I know that's not a sin in and of itself, but neglecting the God of the universe is If you are falling into sin, it means that you're not finding your satisfaction in God. You're not drinking from the well. I'll tell you, I'm as guilty as anyone. I look for my satisfaction elsewhere, not always in sinful things, but when it comes down to it, sometimes I become just like Judah and say, hmm, I don't care that it's sinful, but I'm so accustomed to, to, to finding my satisfaction in things that are not God that in this time I'll compromise and go for it. And so I'll tell you that, if you're not finding your satisfaction in God, you may not be walking in outright uh, fruit you know, type of sin, <clears throat> but it's soon to come. It's soon, it's soon to come. What we need to do is seek God while he can be found. What we need to do is delight ourselves in the Lord because he will give us the desires of our hearts. What we need to do is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Pursue him. Drink of him. Taste him. I would say this. Again, I, I just want to make sure that I'm not still talking in the clouds. How do you keep from forgetting like Judah? And how can you, you know, uh, long for him? Open his word. It is filled with his glories, cover to cover, filled with the glories of Christ, the glories of God, his love for us, and his future promises. I kind of break it up into three groups a little bit here. I don't know if I can go to the next slide. I'm not having a whole lot of luck here. Sorry, that's small. Here's what we need. We need superior satisfaction. Sin is fun or we wouldn't do it. You wouldn't lie if you didn't think that it would be more convenient for you. You wouldn't commit sexual sin if you didn't think it would be pleasurable. And, and on and on it goes. You wouldn't hold on to bitterness if you didn't think it tasted good. You need a superior satisfaction. I need a superior satisfaction in God to overcome that sin. And how do I do that? By faith in future promises. God promises that he will be better. Um, again, I think of some passages... No idea where they are. Totally lost my place. Anyways. Oh, okay. How about this? Uh, Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's a future promise. Do you get that? You may not in that moment uh, receive it, but right, right now you're, you're sitting there thinking, I don't know. This sin kind of seems like more fun than seeking God. 
faith believes that he will reward those who seek him. There's just so many examples of this, by the way, in the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 11 is, is filled with them. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Once again, you see this. Moses, just like Judah, not, not Judah, Joseph, was willing to take upon him to be, to be mistreated, right? This doesn't end well for Joseph, earthly speaking. He ends up in prison. But I'll tell you something, we never see him lacking joy or peace or hope. Just really don't. Even in prison. Oh yeah, another one there. Present power. You need to look for future promises. By the way, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you don't remember any other verse, seeing God is the thing that will bring you greatest joy. And that, that can happen right now, and it will happen in fullness in the future. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Future promises can help your longing to say, this will be better to see more of God. Jesus says in John, I think it's 15 or maybe 13 or 14. He says, I will manifest myself to him. This is the person who obeys him. I will manifest myself to him. Believe in that. Faith can make you pure, be, pure because you can say, I believe that the pure in heart will see God. Both more on a daily basis and uh, more fullness of enjoyment for eternity. And of course, to, to not be pure in heart is to end up in the lake of fire. So we have so many reasons to, to pursue this, these future uh, promises, but also present power. You need to believe that Jesus has really broken the bonds of sin. I hear people say, uh, you know, like, well, I, I just, I felt like I had to do this thing. I, I couldn't help it. Joseph ends up in prison for not committing this sexual immorality. Which of you has ended up in prison for your morality? Maybe. I don't know. There is power to do this. And the Bible tells us about this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every single time, according to, uh, what was that, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God will not allow you to be tempted more than you're able. Okay, think with me here. There's that guy that I like it when he shows me att attention. Sure, I'm married. In that moment, you say, I really enjoy when I flirt with him and he gives me attention. That's, that's a form of sexual immorality, in my opinion, by the way. It's not keeping the marriage bed pure. In that moment, what do you need to believe? No. To refrain from this, it will hurt momentarily. Just like going to prison hurts momentarily, right? But it will be greater. I will have greater joy, greater hope, greater peace that will surpass the superior satisfaction in God rather than that thing. And how, how are you... In that moment, you don't ha feel that satisfaction, but you're believing in the future promise of that, and you believe in that present power. I don't, I don't have to engage. I don't have to lock eyes and make eyes at him. Maybe we're a guy, and that, that, that person who doesn't know how to dress modestly is walking by. Same questions happen in our minds. It might be enjoyable to look. It might be enjoyable. No, no. You need superior satisfaction faction to overcome that a rule thou shalt not commit sexual immorality that's not going to help you in that moment what you need is for your longings to take over yes I, I might long for the pleasure of doing this sinful thing but i long for god more this is what we need and we must cultivate it we must cultivate this and again jesus has broken our bonds to sin if you you're a Christian, you're not bound to these sins anymore. You're, you're bound now and able to walk in freedom. Now, some of you, once again, we just need to run through these things. 
you could say, but I'm not in a good place right now. I've already made my, I'm already like walking down the path I'm on. Confess your sins. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. It is not too late. This is a message of truth, right? Sexual sin will kill you. Any sin unrepented of, walking in it, will kill you. But this is a message of grace and of hope. God has broken those chains, and he has given you superior satisfaction, future promises, and present power to overcome these things. Let me tell you, if you're struggling with sexual immorality, it can change today. Don't do it on your own power. You put to death uh, the, the deeds of the body by the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Run to Him. Cling to Him. Say, God, give me satisfaction in you. Open your Bible and say, God, show me how to be satisfied in you. Show me the promises to cling to. Show me uh, the, the ways of escape, the present power. It can change today. I'll tell you, I, I think about this. You think about future promises. God really can make you a pure person where you can be around that, that cute young lady and not be lusting after her. You can be around that guy that you like his attention and not be overly desiring it, overpowered by that. But again, any sin. You can be patient with your children. You really can. You can uh, be forgiving to those who have wronged you. You really can. You can be generous with your goods rather than just hoarding up treasures on, in heaven, or, or treasures on earth, rather. Uh, you can be generous. You can be loving. You can be caring. You can be serving that's the picture God paints of the Christian in the Bible of what we can be and honestly what we one day ultimately will be in heaven. But we can be that now. We can be that now. And I hope that we all see that and long for that. And mostly we desire to, to know God and experience him more. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The question is, do we believe it? Do we long for it? Let's pray. Father God, I am not so naive as to think that even the majority in this room have their sexual desires under control. As I look at statistics, polls, I see that even those who name the name of Christ, who claim to be Christians, are often walking in these patterns of unrepentant sin, the sexual immorality, and they don't even realize that they're on the wide road that leads to destruction. Oh God, would you awaken us to the reality of sin and help us to say, how then could I do this wickedness and this sin against God? Awaken us to that, God. And we know that the, the way that you will do that, the way you always do it, is by helping us to believe the truths of your word, that you are greater, that you are better, that you will more handsomely reward, that your promises are better and more true than the promises of sin, that you are more satisfying than the sins that we might commit. And help that instill in us a greater longing, a superior satisfaction in you, rather than in our sin. No matter what that may cost us, no matter what pleasures we may uh, lose out of that, we will have greater pleasure, greater reward in you. God, help us to believe it and help this not just to be a sermon, God. God, may this not just be a sermon that you say, that we might say, this fix me or this will hopefully fix me. No, this is something that we must cultivate. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. We need your word. We need the gospel in front of us every day, renewing our minds so that we might not be conformed to the, the image of this world. Oh God, do this in our hearts. Do it for our families. Do it for our children. Do it for our husbands, for our wives. Do it for our friends. But mostly, God, do it for your glory and our eternal joy in you.
Jesus, I pray in your son's name who makes it all possible. Amen. You can now take this time to reflect. It'll just take me a second to get my uh, guitar on. And I've uh, chosen the song, Nothing But the Blood, because that's what we need to look to. The blood of Jesus, the Savior who needed nothing from us, yet gave everything for us. He can wash away our sins. He can make us white as snow. He can cleanse us even of unrighteousness. So let's all bow our heads and give it to God and ask him to change the longing of our hearts and give us the resolve to continue that.